Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you this morning. Um, it's my great uh, pleasure to bring to you Hebrews chapter 4 this morning. And um, yeah, I, I've been thinking about it a lot, and it's a little bit curly. Um, it goes to a lot of different places, but I wanted this sermon to be quite biblically heavy, and I'm going to hopefully you'll see why. Uh, when we get to the end of the sermon, but because we want to hear from God and His Word, I'm actually going to ask my mother to come up and uh, she's going to read Hebrews chapter 4 for us. Uh, I will then uh, pray and we'll get right into it. I would have asked somebody else because, you know, mum's already up here doing plenty of stuff, but she's conveniently at home, so it's easy to ask her. (laughs) So reading from uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest. Just as God has said, so I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day God rested from all his works. And again, in this passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it, is, it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Join me in praying. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, uh, that it is powerful, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, we pray that as I speak, that your words would come forth, Lord, not my own, uh, that yours would resonate in each of our hearts And that it wouldn't just be a nice thought, Lord, but that it would actually change us and that we would respond to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Right, this chapter of Hebrews, I'm not sure if you noticed, it talks quite a lot about God's rest. And I was thinking about it, I'm like, what what exactly is God's rest? Uh, It seems a bit of an abstract concept. Well, at least it was to me, and that's because when I hear the word rest, I think about maybe time off work, taking a nap, or reading a book, maybe watching a movie, and I come from a family of people who are particularly good at this type of rest. Uh, I, can, uh, I can stay on the couch for an entire day and not feel the urge to do anything productive, um, and I think that's sort of a bit of a superpower, to be honest, um, even if it's a bit of a selfish one. Uh, but is this the type of rest that this, is, that this passage is talking about? I think the, sh- the short answer is no, but the long answer, you're going to have to set aside a week for, no, no. Um, the long answer is that the word for rest here is actually a noun, not a verb. It's, it's not something that you do, it's a place where you are. So the, the Greek word here for rest is actually a noun, God's rest is actually a place where we can be. It also has a sense of finality to it, like something is at rest when it stops moving, Uh, like a ball rolling across grass is at rest when it stops moving. It's in a state of rest. It's in rest. For the Israelites, God's rest was going to come in the promised land. But as we saw in Chapter 4, verse 8, let me read it again to you. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Joshua didn't give them that rest. That rest didn't come in the promised land. The writer of Hebrews actually instead uses this idea of God's rest as referring to the new creation. The new creation is the place of God's rest because when it comes... Time will have run its course. Time will rest. All evil will be put to an end. And those who believe will be accepted into an eternal, unchanging relationship with God in his new physical creation. Everything will be at rest. It's nothing more is going to change. And yet we live in this in-between time where the new creation hasn't come yet but we can still enter God's rest today, as we'll see later on. So that's a bit about what God's rest is, but 
that's not what this passage is mainly dealing with. This passage is mostly talking about what keeps us from entering God's rest. And it talks about what we must do to enter God's rest. And um, these are actually the crucial points to consider if we want to enter God's rest, which surely we do. To answer these questions, we actually have to go back a bit into chapter 3 because the context for this passage is particularly important. The writer of Hebrews actually starts sort of a written sermon halfway through chapter 3 and it goes pretty much to the end of chapter 4. And so the chapter divisions can actually be sort of really unhelpful here um, because the discourse actually starts a bit earlier than the start of chapter 4. And that the sermon that, he, that they begin to write is on Psalm 95. So we should actually probably be a bit familiar with Psalm 95 if we want to hear a sermon about it. So um, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 95. Um, we're going to read this and uh, hopefully that'll uh, help us see a bit more what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say. So this is Psalm 95, verse 1. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, Let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. And this is the section that's quoted in uh, Hebrews. Today, if only you would hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me though they had seen what I had done. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Notice at the start of the psalm, that David refers to God as the rock of salvation. Now, I don't believe that that's just a generic name that David chose for this psalm because he actually goes on to reference these events at Meribah and Massa, these two incidences where water comes from the rock in the wilderness. I think once you read through the psalm, it's not unrealistic to think that David is actually trying to say that God is like those rocks in the wilderness. God himself will be our relief in a dry and exhausting place. We would be satisfied in God and trust in him to provide. And he can because he's the one who created all things and can supply all of our needs. That's what we read throughout the rest of the psalm. And as such, he is worthy of praise. Whilst those events were taking place uh, in the wilderness, uh, the Israelites were grumbling and were complaining to God. He was taking them on a journey to the promised land, which was actually to be their place of rest, as we've seen before. But instead of entering that rest, they don't enter that rest because God was angry with them, because they weren't satisfied with God. 
what he had done for them wasn't enough. That's why they were complaining. You don't complain if you've got everything that you need. These people weren't satisfied with God, despite all the amazing things he had done for them. I mean, I can understand God's anger there. Like, wouldn't that be frustrating? Like, I can imagine as a parent providing all these things for your kids and then suddenly they, they're not listening and doing what you ask, despite the fact that everything that you do, you're loving them. The Israelites refused to listen to God and be satisfied with what he had done for them. His promises to them through the words he'd given to Moses weren't enough. They weren't satisfied in God and so they never entered his rest, which was the promised land for them. Specifically, the scripture actually says that they didn't enter God's rest because they hardened their hearts to God's word, to his voice. Instead of having their hearts changed from rock to water at the word of God, they remained like rocks, unchanged by God's voice. They weren't satisfied with God's promises. They were complaining that God wasn't being faithful. They hardened their hearts and were unable to be changed by God's word, and that kept them from entering his rest. Do you see the progression? They can't enter the rest because of their hard hearts. As we are now the people of God, it seems that if we are like the Israelites not satisfied in God's promises and not willing to be changed by God's word, we can't enter God's rest either, God's rest being his new creation. And this is extremely relevant to us today. I mean, uh, if you look with me back in Hebrews, uh, verse 13 of chapter 3 says, But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of... Uh, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So this relevance to today, it's not just trying to refer to one day a few thousand years ago, one specific day. Today is at the present time. When we read this psalm, we're saying, at this present time, hear his voice. Don't harden your hearts. We can seemingly enter God's rest today. The physical new creation we talked about before isn't here yet, but we are living in its early days. It's this now but not yet tension. I'm not sure if you've heard that phrase before, but it's that now but not yet tension. But to live in that rest today, we must be totally satisfied in God. And that's shown by letting God's word change us. If God's word is enough, then we'll be changed and shaped by it. I believe this is the point the writer of Hebrews is trying to make in this passage. It's not just enough to hear God. Because the the, the people in the Israelites heard the word of God, but they hardened their hearts to it. So it's not about hearing, it's about believing and being changed by the word of God. It's all well and good for us to rock up at church every Sunday and hear the Bible read to us and preached on. It's all well and good for you to read your Bible every day, but if you aren't changed by it, You won't enter God's rest. Do you believe what God says enough for it to change you? Does it satisfy you? Or are you left wanting? Hebrews 3.19 says, So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Their unbelief. 
They're not trusting in God. This is hard stuff to hear. Similarly, we'll never be at rest if we aren't satisfied in God and his promises. We'll always be working for more, trying to earn God's favour or trying to earn material possessions. We must listen to and be satisfied by God's voice, by God's voice, being changed by it if we want to enter his rest. Are you with me? We must not have a hard heart. Chapter 4, verse 2 says it even more starkly. It says this, For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. The good news has no value for those who don't have the faith of those who respond with obedience to the word of God. It's of no value to you if you don't respond with obedience. It's of no value to you if it doesn't affect your life. In fact, down in verse 6, it says this, Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in, because of their disobedience. God set a certain day calling it today. They didn't go in because of their disobedience. Verse 6 says that if you're like the Israelites and you don't respond with a soft heart towards God, you're actually being disobedient. The word here for disobedience is, is not doing something that you've been told not to do. It's not doing what you've been told to do. And I don't know about you, but I do that semi-often around home when there's things asked of me to do. Maybe it's washing the dishes or something really simple like that, but that's the disobedience that it's talking about here. It's not doing what you've been asked to do by God. Particularly, it matters how we respond to God's word in the good news that we have had proclaimed to us, the good news about Jesus. This news has to change us. I mean, this letter was written to a group of Jewish Christians suffering persecution and there was actually a temptation to revert back to their previous religion because of this severe persecution they were suffering. He's trying to strengthen their faith, the person who wrote this. And they're trying to, it's trying to show the, the Hebrews that it's written to that responding to and holding to the faith in the good news of Jesus enables them to enter God's rest more so than their Jewish understanding and religion. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He can enable us to enter that rest. Resisting God's good news about Jesus and not being changed by that, if your heart is not made soft, that means not entering God's rest. However, it's not just the gospel about Jesus. It's all of God's word that we need to be shaped by. All of God's word can change us. So that's pretty heavy stuff, but I think it's really important to understand that it's God's word and us responding to it and being changed by it that allows us to enter his rest. So we've seen what disqualifies us from entering God's rest, and we've seen what's required of us to enter it. 
But uh, how is it exactly that we enter it? Like, yes, responding to the Word of God, but how is it that we go about that process? Well, this is the thing that actually stood out to me most uh, from my studying it, this passage. Is that it's actually a collective responsibility to have hearts that will change in response to God's word. It's a collective responsibility. Let me show you what I mean by this. Come with me to uh, verse 12 and 13 of Hebrews chapter 3. Notice the way that it talks about us, not just individuals. Listen to this. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. See how it says, brothers and sisters, so it's a group of you, As a group, see to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another, brothers and sisters, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So it doesn't seem that people are totally and only responsible for themselves. They're actually responsible for others. Come with me again to 4 verse 1. It says, therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. So it's a responsibility of a group of people to make sure that not a single person falls short. Again, verse 11 of chapter 4. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Do you see that? It's actually the responsibility of the group of people to have their hearts soft for the sake of each member. Does that, does that make sense? It's a collective responsibility. It's not primarily about our own benefit in entering the rest. And yes, the, it tr- truly believing God's word does make a difference for us and enables us to enter his rest. But it seems like the writer of Hebrews is trying to challenge us to take on the responsibility of having soft hearts for the sake of others so that they might enter his rest too. It's not primarily the responsibility of the pastor or your spouse or youth leaders or parents to have soft hearts shaped by the word of God. It's a collective responsibility on all of us to make sure every individual has a soft heart. Certain people might have a special responsibility in teaching God's word, but we are all responsible for responding to God's word. Because a hard heart or a soft heart is infectious. A hard heart or a soft heart is infectious. We don't want hard hearts because we want to enter God's rest. And in fact, verse 11 shows that we should, in fact, make every effort to enter this rest. Don't you think that's ironic? Read again with me, verse 11. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. So it's certainly not the rest that I'm used to. It's a rest where effort is put in to attain it. We have to make every effort to enter this rest Clearly, God's rest isn't about doing nothing. It's about putting in every effort to being changed by God's word. And it takes effort from all of us. 
if one person is trying to be changed by the word of God and everybody else around them isn't, that's, that's tough going. But if one person isn't changed by the word of God and everybody else around them is, it's pretty hard to resist that change. A hard heart or a soft heart is contagious. And when we enter God's rest, we actually rest from our own works, which is what chapter 4 verse 10 says. Read with me, chapter, uh, verse 10. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. The beauty of entering God's rest is that we no longer have to worry about our spiritual works because they're not our own anymore. Like, it's not, we're not boasting over our spiritual works. They're all God's. We should still be doing these spiritual works, but they're no longer our own. This, this is the example that I thought of. If somebody gives you advice about how to approach a situation and you actually follow that advice, it's pretty hard to be arrogant and boastful about that because it wasn't your idea in the first place. It's just taking the advice of someone who gave it. It's pretty hard to be proud of yourself or boastful in that. And the same goes with being obedient to God's word. It's nothing to boast about. And the thing is, not working in your own strength and not working for yourself is pretty restful. We don't have to exhaust ourselves trying to make ourselves special or significant. The other thing is that God's word has the power to change. This is what verses 12 and 13 make abundantly clear. Uh, Read with me verses 12 and 13 of chapter 4. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him, him to whom we must give account. God's word is powerful. It divides even between soul and spirit. Now, I'm not sure if you know this, but that's not possible. You can't divide between soul and spirit. Um, When the Bible talks about soul, it talks about the whole being of a person. Uh, We've been very influenced by Greek and pagan understandings of soul. And so it's not this concept of, the body is sort of a clay jar and that there's a spirit inside of it and then when we die, the spirit sort of gets released. That's, that's a very pagan way of understanding soul. Uh, in the Jewish mind, you can't separate the two. You can't separate your body or your spirit. Your, your soul is one whole being. It's who you are. It's not possible to separate soul and spirit. So what's it trying to say here? Saying that the word of God can divide soul and spirit. Well, saying that it cuts to the heart. It cuts to the very core of who we are. Acts chapter 2, verse 37, uh, the people have heard this sermon preached by Peter and they say, it, it, the verse says, and they were cut to the heart. And they asked, what should we do in response? That's what the word of God does. It cuts to the heart. And this is what this sort of phrasing is trying to say. 
cuts to the very essence of who we are. And it's powerful enough to change us. So God's word is powerful. The other thing is, it shouldn't be hard for us to trust God's word because he actually knows everything. Um, I mean, this would be scary if God was evil. Like, if God was evil and he knew everything, like, that's... I'm worried, but he's only got good in mind for us. He's never uninformed or misinformed, so it's not like he can give us false information. And when we don't respond to God's word with change, and we think we know better than God, we're actually going to be held account for ignoring his direction in his word. Read with me verse 13 again. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So we're giving account to God and how we respond to his word. He knows when we've uh, not uh, done as he suggests and advises. And it's not just that he knows these things from a distance. This verse... Uh, makes it seem like God is coming from a cosmic perspective, which he is, but he doesn't only see things in a cosmic perspective. He knows intimately each of our situations. Jesus knows what it is to be human and to be tempted in every way because God came to us in Jesus. I mean, that's what it says in verse 15. Read with me verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weakness, For we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. God doesn't only know things from a big cosmic perspective, seeing the big picture. He knows that, but he also knows each of our individual perspectives. He knows exactly how we see and feel every situation. That's even more impressive, I think, than just a a cosmic perspective. He actually knows intimately what it is to be human. Jesus was fully human. And that's why he can be our high priest. And this is where it sort of goes in the last section, um, which will be picked up a lot more uh, in the following sermons. But this chapter ends by talking about how we can approach God with confidence. Because Jesus has known our weakness. Yeah, he didn't sin. He can intercede between us and God on our behalf, which was the role of the high priest. Jesus can be that high priest precisely because he was human. He couldn't intercede for us if he wasn't one of us. And Jesus is still human. I'm not sure how, if you've ever thought about this before, but Jesus is still human interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. Jesus didn't lose his humanity in his death or in his resurrection. His soul didn't escape from his body. They're intimately connected. When Jesus chose to come as a man, to come as a man, he chose that for eternity. It's not possible to separate spirit from soul or body. And that's why he can still represent us now at the right hand of the Father. Because he is one of us. 
He is one of us, still human, interceding for us. And as our high priest, he also offered the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. The sacrifice to end all sacrifices, to put sacrifices to rest in his own body and blood. Jesus even said on the cross, it is finished, it's done, or it's at rest. In doing that, he actually ushered in God's rest. He began that work of the new creation, that now but not yet rest, the rest that we can enter if we don't harden our hearts. We must listen to his voice in his word. So what? We've been thinking and talking about how we must be changed by God's word. This is actually a really important question to ask. If we just come here on a Sunday and listen, it's got to change us. It really does. But it is actually a group responsibility. How are we going to be changed by God's word this morning? How are we going to be changed by it? What, what, what are the... What are the things that we are going to do? I have a few suggestions. Firstly, let's be in God's word. If we don't hear it, we can't be changed by it. We can't enter God's rest if we don't hear his word. And I need to hear this just as much as anybody here. And the thing is, it's not only for the sake of an individual, it's for the sake of everyone around you. Have a soft heart. Be changed by God's word, not just for your sake, but for the sake of those around you. We need you to have a soft heart. Be changed by his word. Your soft heart will become contagious or your hard heart will be contagious. We want soft hearts. Secondly, This is something we actually have to discuss together. It can't just be something that the pastor or the elders decide that we should do. We actually should think about how is it that we are going to be putting into practice the things that we hear on a Sunday and the things that we read in our Bible times. It's not just about me, it's about the people around me. How are we doing it together? Lastly, Let's actually make sure we do respond when we hear God's voice through his word. Let's make sure we respond together as a family, not as individuals cohabiting a building for a couple of hours on a Sunday morning. We don't just come and be changed by God's word on our own and then go off. We are a family. We do it together. And if we do that, then, we're, when we, then we will enter God's rest. If we are changed by God's word and we do that together, we will enter God's rest. And we'll help others enter God's rest. Not just those here, but those who don't ne- yet know the Lord. They'll be changed by our soft hearts. They'll enter God's rest now, as well as into eternity in God's restful new creation. Join with me in praying. Dear Heavenly Father, um, 
your word is amazing. Lord, sometimes we don't take enough time to read it and to mull over it. Lord, we pray that uh, you would give us a heart and a passion, that you would change us, Lord, to love your word. And Lord, let it not just be something that we think about or ponder, but let it, let it change us, Lord. Let it change us so that we might enter into your rest, so that those around us might enter into your rest. That is the cry of our heart, Lord. Let us be changed by your word. Let us be changed by your word this morning, Lord. Not my words, but your word. Let it change us this morning. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen.